good morning. Uh, it's a delight to be back with you this morning. My name's David, and I'm happy to uh, be able to be here with you some this summer. We're going to be in Philippians 4, uh, verse 10, and as we go there, uh, we're finishing up sort of a mini-series in Philippians together as we think about some priorities from prison. Uh, what, what would Paul have his people think about? Uh, as they as they walk through some struggles in the church, this was a great church, a church that he loved, but also one that was struggling with some disunity. And so uh, we talked about uh, Philippians 1, that, that Paul would have us get back to gospel proclamation and rejoicing in the progress of that gospel. Philippians 2, that he would get us back to humility in Christ. And here this morning, we're going to think about what it looks like to have contentment in Christ Jesus. So as we turn to the word, let's go to Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, thank you for your holy word. It's inspired by you. It's breathed out by you, Lord. As we approach it, we don't approach it like any other book. We approach this one as if it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's able to, to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, to train us for righteousness that we might be men and women equipped, complete for every good work. And so we pray that you would have your effect upon us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians 4, we'll be looking at verses 10 through 13. Let's turn to God's word. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Thanks be to God for his holy, inspired, and errant, and therefore authoritative uh, word for us. Well, maybe you've heard the name Fanny Crosby. She was uh, a great hymn writer in the late 19th, early 20th century, uh, American hymn writer from the Northeast, and she wrote nearly uh, 8,000 hymns. Uh, You might remember hymns like Blessed Assurance or All the Way My Savior Leads Me or or To God Be the Glory. But when she was six weeks old, she had some sort of eye infection. And so her parents called the local doctor, but the local doctor wasn't in town. But there was another man in town that they actually did not know and wouldn't see again uh, who was traveling through, I guess, and and, uh, was professed to be a doctor. So he came and worked on Fanny's eyes. And one of the remedies of the day was to heat up a hot plant and put it on on the eyes so that it could draw the infection out of the eyes and into the plant. Well, instead of doing that on Fanny's eyes, it burned her eyes and scarred them and she was left blind for life at six weeks old. She went on to write 8,000 hymns. But more than that, she, she, she began to have to really rely upon her memory. And so she set to memorize. She memorized the entire Pentateuch first five books of the Bible. She memorized all of Proverbs. She memorized all the Gospels and more books in the Bible. And later on, she was asked about this doctor, and she said this, don't blame the doctor. He's probably passed away by now. But if I could meet him, I would tell him that he unwittingly did me the greatest favor in all the world. She'd learned the secret. And I think it's a secret that the Lord wants us to learn perhaps afresh, perhaps for the first time this morning, the the secret of contentment in Christ Jesus. 
Contentment in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul's talking about here. So let's think about this in two parts. First, an occasion for contentment, verses 10 and 11. Remember where Paul is. Paul is in prison. Some would debate he's in prison in Rome. Some in Caesarea, most likely he's on house arrest in Rome. Uh, which sounds a little bit more appealing than prison, but he was chained to a praetorian guard, sort of a Navy SEAL-like figure, 24-7. So he's stuck in Rome, he's in prison, but it's very clear that he's not just in prison because of circumstances, he's in prison for Christ Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 13 speaks to, and that the whole praetorian guard actually knew this, that this guy is here because of his love for and his proclamation of Christ. And he's writing to this church that he founded, probably 10 years before, that he loves, that there weren't very many issues with other than some sort of disunity in the church. And so he uses Jesus as an example of humility and then Timothy as an example of humility and then Epaphroditus and then himself as men who could represent to them what it looks like to be humble and that humility is the pathway to unity. And here he's going to teach them about contentment as well. This was a church that wanted to support them, but for some reason they'd been hindered from the opportunity. It says here uh, in verse 10 that they have revived their concern for him. They were concerned, but they had no opportunity. In fact, something happened. We don't know what, but they were wanting to maybe send a gift, but they were hindered by that. Finally, they sent Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus who was a faithful witness in their community. And he goes to Paul and ministers to Paul, but he gets sick on the way. And so Paul is desirous to send him back to let them know that he suffered for them, that he almost actually died for them to serve the church and to serve Paul, but also to hand them this letter to deal with a few issues, but most of all to encourage them. And so here in verse 11 he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned that whatever situation I'm to be content. So they finally did give him a gift and his response is, I have no needs. So think about that. If, if you gave someone a gift and they said, thank you, but I have no need of this. Uh, it seems as if Paul's actually being unkind here, but he's really not. What he's doing is he's using this as a teachable moment. No doubt you have teachable moments in your life. Uh, my father-in-law is a nuclear engineer and is retired now in, in the hills of Tennessee with, with my mother-in-law. And he can do anything with his hands. I can do nothing with my hands. Sarah learned that very early on. My wife learned that very early on. And I never deal with insecurity over that. But he can do anything. Uh, and so he has recently taken to uh, having chickens uh, and, and having eggs and all those sorts of things. So when the grandkids go up there, they like to get in the coop and, and mess with the chickens. But so do raccoons and, and foxes. And so uh, my father-in-law built uh, an electric fence around the chicken coop which when you're a nuclear engineer, an electric fence is more like an electric death trap. <laughs> and so he has warned all the kids, don't go near the electric fence when the electricity's on. He has nine grandchildren. One of them has not been electrocuted. <laughs> so every time it's this teachable moment, right? This, this opportunity to say, I, okay, I told you what happens when electricity touches your body. Now you know. Now you know again, perhaps, or if you're like some of my children, now you know thrice times uh, and beyond. It's a teachable moment. And for Paul, he's saying, this gift is wonderful, but I want to use it actually to teach you something really, really important. I want to teach you about contentment. Contentment wasn't a strange idea in, in the Greco-Roman ears. 
In fact, the Stoics, philosophers at the time, really platformed contentment. It was actually their highest virtue. Their view of contentment was that if I can rid myself of all earthly needs, desires, emotions, anything that the world offers, then I can be content. But their version of contentment is then I can be self-sufficient. I don't need anything else out there. I have everything that I need within myself. So one of the Stoics, as one commentator wrote, said this, begin with a cup and if it breaks, say, I don't care. Go on to a horse or pet dog and if anything happens to it, say, I don't care. Go on to yourself and if you're hurt or injured, say, I don't care. You get the drift. And if you go a long way and try hard enough, you will come to a stage when you can watch your nearest and dearest suffer and die and say, I don't care. Imagine that sort of worldview. Imagine that you go home today and you're with your daughter and your dog gets hit by a car in the street, a traumatic event, and you say, sweetheart, I don't care that that dog just died. And you shouldn't either. If you were mature, you wouldn't care either. That is how you grow in maturity. You don't care. And we laugh about it. It is a laughable worldview until we try to grin and bear it through hardship. Maybe you grinned and bared it through COVID-19, through 2020, through fear of, of, of losing your job, through fear of losing a loved one, through a cancer diagnosis, through a miscarriage, through losing someone but also having others not be able to come around you in that time of need. We've lost a lot this past year. And have we dealt with that through stoicism? I don't care. I'm not going to feel it. I'm just going to find strength in myself. It's the modern day version of you need to have it all together and need no one. You ever hear that line? It's subtle, but it's everywhere. It's what Instagram's built upon, I think. I'm not sure if that's their vision statement, but have it all together and need no one. Look at me. We buy into this motto all the time, and if, we really, if, we re, if it really gets its tentacles in us, then we either drive ourselves into to, um, just, just this endless vortex of drivenness, or we despair. I can't do it. And Paul says, no, contentment's actually different than the Stoics. It's something different altogether. Whatever the situation, it's an opportunity to learn the secret of contentment. And secondly, he points to that secret. The secret of true contentment in verses 12 and 13. He says this in verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Uh, one of the things that I love doing is coaching my children in baseball. I played baseball all through high school and the last five or six years I've coached my children. And this last year we switched from, uh, from one league to a, a bit more of an intense league and uh, it did not go well. Uh, we lost our first five games and I think I remember doing the tally in my head at one point. I think we lost them by a combined 56 to eight or so. It was a rough start. The kids were discouraged, but the dads were despondent. The dads were completely despondent. Uh, myself, perhaps included. I, I remember thinking, if we could just score some runs, win some games, then the dads will be happy and I'll be satisfied. I will be self-sufficient at that point. Uh, and I remember one dad, sort of maybe in, in a moment of weakness, told me what he really thought. A couple dads told me what they really thought. 
But he said this, he said, to be honest, I think we just want more for our kids. Which really meant we want to win games. That's all we really care about. We want to win games. And I was actually studying this passage at the time, and I thought, what, what if I had to turn to him and said, you know what I really want for your son? I want to teach him the secret of contentment. It's not about wins and losses. It's about him learning the secret. He would have said, what are you talking about? Nobody wants that. Nobody says, you know, I don't care about wins and losses. I'm just content. Instead, we say things like, you know, if I have plenty, I'll be content. If I have abundance, if I have freedom, if I have entertainment at will, if I have lots of friends or lots of social events to scratch my FOMO itch, if I have success, if I have money to buy whatever I need, if I have vacations at will, if I have security and stability, maybe if I have a spouse who does what I want, if I have kids who are obedient, or if we have a baseball team that wins games, then, then we'll be content. Then we'll be happy in our lives. But Paul says, actually, no, you know what? If you pursue contentment in the way that the world offers it, it will actually always elude your grasp. You'll never actually be able to grab a hold of and experience the joy of contentment. Instead, he says, contentment is a secret and that it doesn't come to you the way the world would offer it. And he goes on to say in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's contentment. This is maybe the most valued and underappreciated under, under, and misunderstood verse in our culture. Uh, it's good for an arm tattoo. Uh, it's good for eye black on a football player. I know Tim Tebow's off limits from the pulpit. I, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't go there. It's good for believing the idea that if I'm down four, it's fourth and goal in the Super Bowl with 30 seconds left, I can throw a touchdown pass. If I'm down two with, with time expiring, I can shoot a three and win the NBA Finals. That's, what, that's why God put this verse in the Bible. Remember where Paul is. He's in prison. He's chained to a Navy SEAL, so to speak. And I don't think what's going through his mind is, all right, God, that's a good one. That's going to help the 21st century American athlete crush it on the ball field. <laughs> this verse is going to really go places. No, contentment is not self-satisfaction and glory, actually, as the American might use it. Contentment is not, on the other hand, self-sufficiency. I can do it all in myself. It's not an absence of feeling and emotion. It's not inactivity and passivity. But it's also not drivenness and striving. Contentment for Paul is Christ's sufficiency. That's the secret. It's Christ's sufficiency. And the secret is that, is that contentment comes as we more and more recognize the joy of what it means to be in Christ. This is a theme that we've brought out in actually uh, every sermon that I've preached this summer from Philippians. That for Paul, he says here, actually, I can do all things in him who strengthens me. That's actually a better translation of the Greek. I can do all things in him who strengthens me. And for Paul, that's not just an accidental twist there. That is his favorite way of describing what it means to be a Christian. That you are in union and communion with the Lord Jesus. And I've said this every time I've been here this summer. What that means is that when Christ lived his perfect life, it's as if you were perfect. His perfection is imputed to you. 
That when he died his death on the, sin, the cross for sin, it's as if your old man died there. He took on your sin and he gave you his righteousness. That when he rose from the dead, you rose to new life. That when he ascended up into heaven, it's as if you now sit with him in the heavenly places, as Paul says in Colossians 3. That your core identity is now that you're actually with him now in heaven, though you live your life in existence here. And then when he returns, you'll realize, you'll realize that ultimate reality forever with him in glory. That your chief identity is not what you do, it's not the family you came from, it's not the, the pass you threw on the football field, it's none of that. It's that if you have faith in Christ, then you are united with him for now and for all eternity. And for Paul, that's the most important thing in all of life. That's the secret. That's it. He's saying that when we are in Christ Jesus, though we might actually have abundance on this earth, it pales in comparison to what we have in Christ. And that when we're in Christ Jesus, though we might not have anything on this earth, we have everything in Christ. Or, or put it in the negative, if we have all things on this earth and don't have Christ, we have nothing. Nothing. If we have nothing on this earth and we have Christ, we have everything. That's what Paul is saying is the secret. Remember that he's in prison for Christ, and we brought this out in Philippians 1. Again, you could translate that he's in prison in Christ. That whether he's out of prison and enjoying the abundance of this world or he's in prison and deprived of the abundance of this world, because he's in Christ, he has everything. And that's a satisfaction. That's a contentment that lasts. Alec Motier, who was a commentator who's, who's recently passed, said this about this passage. Paul rescued this word and made it mean the restful contentment of the Christian, the opposite of the desire for more. I think that a, a lot of times in my life, there's this refrain going on, more, 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 better, better, better. Does that refrain ever drive you? There's more out there that's gonna make you happy. There's better, you can do better, you can do more, 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 better, better, better. And Motier says, this is the word that's the opposite of that. It's restful contentment. And Paul's often doing that, isn't he? He, he grabs a hold of a, of a Greco-Roman ideology or word and he says, no, 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 that's a good word. That's a bad concept. Let me take it over here and Christianize it. It's as if he puts helium in it and sends it off as a balloon. He, he redeems this word. He says, no, it no longer means what the Stoics say. It means self-sufficiency. It means, it means restedness in Christ Jesus. That's what it means now. And some of us are so restless, aren't we? So anxious. So stressed, so troubled, so fearful, so frustrated, so dissatisfied. And, and the psalmist in Psalm 127, which I guess you would have probably read last week, perhaps, says this, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Don't you feel like you just feast on that sometimes? Just give me more of that bread. I don't know why I'm anxious, but I sure am loving this bread. For he gives to his beloved sleep or rest. We're restless because maybe we haven't learned the secret. Sinclair Ferguson, who was a pastor at my church at First Pres and, and is a great Scottish theologian, said it this way, Christian contentment is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord. What sort of ambition do you have in your life? No higher ambition than to belong to the Lord and to be totally at his disposal in the place he appoints, at the time he chooses, with the provisions 
he is pleased to make. Do you know that whatever the Lord has for you is to take you to a place where you love the world a little less and Jesus a little more? Where you find contentment in Christ? And in fact, it's best learned in hardship. Ferguson goes on to say, in fact, it should be obvious to us that real spiritual contentment in the Lord can grow only under circumstances that can produce discontentedness. Isn't that interesting? Don't we spend our lives, isn't this American motto, maximize pleasure and minimize pain? Don't we spend our lives putting up walls, pain outside, pleasure inside? And my whole life is, is spent spinning around trying to maximize my pleasure and minimize my pain. And the Lord's saying, when you do that, you're actually getting rid of one of the primary agents that I use in this life to give you what you really desire, which is contentment in Christ Jesus. Hardship. It's a fruit of hardship. That's what Paul's going through. He's in prison. And he learned it by going to school. The school of hardship. That's where he was. It's the fruit of being in Christ in the midst of hardship. This last year or so has been a, a year of loss for us. Um, and I know we don't like to, Americans, we don't like to think about the past. <laughs> we like to forget it and move on. And then we hear people say, well, we might go back towards the lockdown and, and, and you want to run me off the, the pulpit for even saying it. We've lost things this last year. For some of you, if I said, yeah, Clemson and Carolina are not going to allow full capacity this year. You'd run me out of here. We're not going back there. But, but in the midst of all that loss, and for some of you it's way more personal than that, you actually have lost loved ones. Uh, it's been really tough. But in the midst of that loss, what's been the constant? The constant has been Christ. It's been what theologians refer to as the Emmanuel Principle. That the Emmanuel principle is that God is with us, his people. That the great covenant promise is that I will be your God and you will be my people and I will never leave you nor forsake you. And it's most fully seen and realized, right, when Jesus comes and what's his name? Emmanuel, God with us. That's the principle of scripture. That's actually been the constant all throughout this last year and all through our lives if we're in Christ Jesus that he will never and has never leave our sides. He'll never leave our side. But he might put us in a school of hardship so that he might produce contentment. If, if we'll listen, if we'll apply, if we'll learn. And that's what I'm afraid we might miss as God's people. That we're so busy moving on to the next thing or getting caught up with the next argument or fussing with one another. And that's what they were doing in this church, by the way. They were arguing with one another. Paul has to tell two women that you, you need to agree in the Lord. Church, help them agree in the Lord. Nothing's new, right? We have disunity. We fuss, we argue, we get stressed with one another. We're, we're grumpy with one another. And Paul's saying, no, I want you to learn contentment in Christ Jesus that helps move you along the way in unity in the body of Christ. This is why I think he can tell Timothy, his disciple, in 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, that godliness with contentment is great gain. What if that was our mission statement? What do you want in life? I want to grow in godliness. 
and I want to be content knowing that I'm in Christ and that I'm striving to become more like Christ. That's what I want. Or as Paul puts it actually in this, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain in chapter one. In chapter three, my goal is to know him and the fellowship of what his sufferings. I want to I know him and the power of his resurrection. That our mission statement as the body of Christ is actually to know Christ Jesus, the one who is ours and we are his. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And so Paul's saying, yes, I can do all things, even, and this is the emphasis, even learn contentment in hardship. That's what that verse really means. I can do all things in Christ Jesus, even learn contentment. And what he really does is he puts it to us as, as, as a question. You could read this, this whole text as a question to the Church of Philippi is a question to Columbia Presbyterian Church. It's this. Church, I have learned the secret of contentment in Christ, Paul says. I can do all things in Christ, even learn contentment and be content in every circumstance. Have you learned the secret? Have I learned the secret? As Fanny Crosby goes on to write in her hymn, All the Way My Savior Leads Me, I think she says it well. Remember her context. All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy who through life has been my guide? Emmanuel principle. Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. For I know whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. That's the secret. Whatever comes at us, whatever has come at us, in the past and in the future, Jesus doeth all things well. And to be in him is to have everything. Let's go to him in prayer. Gracious Father, thank you that you never let us graduate. (laughs) That you have us in school. That we might learn. That we might remember that we might apply what it means to know that we are in Christ Jesus. What, what an incredible gift. We've not done anything to produce that. It's all of your grace, and we trust you by faith. Teach us, Lord, contentment in Christ Jesus that would then produce a humility of Christ Jesus that would cause us to rejoice in the proclamation of the gospel. Thank you for this letter. Thank you that it's inspired by you. And thank you for the lessons that we might learn from it. Thank you that if we have Christ, we have everything. Lord, may it be then our goal to know him, to press on to know him. And all for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.